Hello everyone, this is Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing at Little Brown Books for Young Readers, and I'm tremendously pleased to welcome all our listeners throughout the virtual waves to the Little Brown School and Library podcast, for this episode features a brand new author, Lindsay Becker, author of the truly fantastical The Star Thief. Welcome, Lindsay. Hello. That was a great introduction. (laughs) I've so enjoyed reading The Star Thief, and I've been quite inspired by it. It's the story of Honorine, a maid and a cleaner, which seems sort of a standard fare story in that she is an ordinary child. But in fact, she is a maid and cleaner in the mansion of Lord Vidalia, who is a most unusual person and who runs a most distinctive establishment for his mansion and his library are filled with wonders that are intriguing to Honorine. I know, Lindsay, that you've been writing for a while, but this is your first published book so far. Can you give our listeners a sense of how you began to approach this story or any story that you write? Did it begin through character or a particular scene or phrase? And and how did you move on from that? So um, the stuff I, things I write about are always just kind of concepts that catch me, that just make me think, and that I get excited about every time I remember them. But I don't really start writing anything about them until I have a character. And those usually come from, uh, like, a name that, uh, that just seems interesting, and I can picture a, a kid who would have that name. And then as soon as I have them, and I can connect them to the other concepts that I find interesting, then I just start writing. I'm a, I'm a, a panster. <laughs> I just like to get a first draft out without a ton of planning. So for this one, there's Honorine. You know, when she arrived, then I had the rest of things for her to do, which were uh, meet the constellations. I I love those stories. I love the mythology. I'll read anything about that that I can find. And I always love stories about the constellations are heroes or mythical creatures that get put in the sky. And like, as a kid, I always loved that idea, but I wanted like another, okay, so they're put in the sky and then what? Like, is it just a memorial? Are they really up there? Like, if they're really up there, can you can they come back down? Can we see them? So once I had a good character to explore that world with, then I just kind of add all the things in that I find interesting, like the setting for this one, end of the 19th century, when um, there was a lot of new science, when all of kind of our modern Western sciences were developing. So Lord Vidalia is just a guy who what a sort of eccentric English nobleman who just decides he wants to go study something, so he just does. <laughs> and that's kind of his backstory. And then she ends up getting tied into it. Um, but that's how I approach it. As soon as I have a character that has something interesting to do, I start writing. I'm intrigued by this. I, I know a number of writers who think about the beginnings of their character uh, from the voice or the words that the character will use. Other writers think about the character in terms of a physical description. I, I have one author friend who can't really continue on with a novel, no matter how many phrases or words are popping around in his head until he sees the character. Is it is the hearing of the character more important for you, or is the seeing of the character more important? It's probably the hearing, because I do, um, I will write introductory just stuff for myself just to hang out with the character and get to know them and, and put them in situations and see how they would react. A lot of that happens during the first draft of, like, you know, tons of stuff gets written that never ends up in the final version, but I get to see how they would react 
cast. And yeah, definitely what they say or what seems natural for them to say, that shapes the character. As far as how they look, I mean, a lot of writers I know, and I love seeing this, but like to cast their books and pick like a very specific look. I give kind of very general descriptions because I don't really, I don't really ever have them super, I know what they look like to me, but it's not as super important that they look that way to everybody else that's reading them. So what they're saying and how they're reacting is really how I get to know my characters. You, you've raised an issue for me that I've been speaking about with a number of authors over the course of the podcast. It's how much work you'd like the reader to do, or to phrase it another way, how much freedom you'd like the reader to have in imagining their version of the world. And it sounds like there's a certain amount of that that you, you'd like to invite the reader to do. Another element of what you've said that's intriguing to me is you begin with the voice of your character in the dialogue. I know some authors compose with typewriters or pens or the dreaded uh, laptop, but some compose orally. They will actually try out words and phrases or try to speak the dialogue. Which do you prefer? Um, I definitely write it all down. I, I did try once upon a time to sort of dictate to myself, and it did not, it did not work well for me. Um, but I will, I always, always, always have a notebook of some kind, if I can't carry around a full-size one, I'll have one in my pocket, and I jot stuff down all the time. Anything that occurs to me um, that fits with the story or it's something the character does that occurs to me, and in the moment, I write that, just always writing that down. If I'm in a desperate situation where I don't have paper and pen with me, I'm texting it to myself or emailing it to myself for later. Um, but I definitely work everything out on the page, whether it's handwritten or on the computer screen. Let's go back a little bit to Lord Vidalia and and his uh, eccentricities. I'm intrigued that you place this novel in a version of the 19th century, which is nearing the end of the age of exploration, and we get uh, folks going to the North and South Poles, and really the circumference of the world is established, and, and we're really f- more fully mapping it. There is an interest in science in that age, and measurement and quantifying, and yet you've brought in the constellations, which are really the source and fascination of some of our oldest mythologies. The Star Thief seems to construct an origin story for these constellations that's basically a whole new mythos that is able to interact with this science. Uh, did you construct this mythos from any older sources, or what did you do to come up with this version of the constellations and how they appear in the world? Um, for the background of my version of the constellations, I use a lot of existing mythology, um, especially the names of the constellations that we still use, like scientifically, and the, and the mythologies, ones that you can still find. Um, that was I, I really like that part of the book. If the, the kid likes the, any of the particular constellations, they can go find them. They're right out there. I look at them every night when I'm out walking my dog in the <laughs> night. And um, as far as building up a mythology for them, I just kind of connected dots that are already there. Like the early navigation and calendar creation was all kind of based on following stars and following the sun. So I just kind of expanded on that as sort of the origin of most of our science, especially astronomy, and added other sciences and art forms attached to the other constellations. That's how I made them characters that interact with the modern world, but then also would be recognizable to anybody anywhere from previous cultures, which is kind of how they tie into what happens to the characters in the narrative that I put together for them. I'm really interested in this element of your story that in some ways the age of exploration and science is is removing the vitality and the animation from things such as the stars. But your story resists that idea and insists on 
on the stars as something that is alive and active in our world. What was the element of the stars that really captured your imagination that you wanted them to still be very assertive in their liveliness and their and their animation in this world, their power in the world? I think that's kind of looking at the idea of characters that are like immortal, um, sort of, of they're a version of gods uh, in, you know, in a lot of stories because they would have been around forever. And to them, people looking up at the sky, we never get tired of exploring it. We never get tired of watching it. And I think it's the same thing the other way around. You know, the stories about um, people being entertainment for the old the Greco-Roman gods, that kind of idea. Like they would never, they, they get to see whole societies happen. They get to see people develop um skills in different ways and they get to watch all of it and they know all the history that we don't know it's like being an eternal parent and just seeing kids grow over and over again so I think they would have as much interest in watching us as we do in watching them I'm so fascinated by Honorine she she seems such a great middle grade character and I one of the ways in which I I love to think about middle grade is that the opportunity there is that middle grade characters and middle grade literature present a range of moral or psychological development. I mean, in that age group of 8 to 12, you you have 8-year-olds who are wise to all the ways of the world and who are unsurprised by anything, and yet 12-year-olds who are still quite childlike in many ways. It's an amazing opportunity for a writer that you can pack so much into characters of that age. In the case of Honorine, what was your goal in portraying her journey? I do also love that age range. Uh, when I was, you know, when I decided I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to find um, what my what my niche was, it was going back as an adult and reading uh, middle grade books, and all of a sudden I had all the ideas because that is the perfect age. It's the age, you know, when you're when you're a toddler, that's when you learn you are like an individual. That's when kids learn to say no. <laughs> and sort of ask for things on their own. And then when you hit that the, that middle age, age, that's when you start to develop your own agency at different levels. You can start to advocate for yourself and you can start to form long-term plans, like like legit things that you'll be able to do as an adult someday. You start working on them at, you know, start studying things you like. And, and um, you also, I mean, kids that age make, they make all the connections. They see all the things. As much as we think we're explaining the world to them, they are learning it with everything they're watching and doing. And so for Honorine especially, because she's, she's smart and she's tough and she um, is able to stick up for herself, I think right from the beginning, she sort of knows when to pick her battles with adults and when to get her way later. I wanted to put her in a world where there were adversaries, but there wasn't a clear, like, good and evil, good and bad, like, right and wrong. There's just two sides that are opposed to each other, and she's kind of in the middle of it, and I think that is, I think that's very relatable for kids. They can understand that very clearly, that um, we love stories where there's a good and a bad, because then you know who to who to root for, um, and you, there's a clear, like, objective, but real life is so much grayer, and there isn't always a winner and a loser, but the, the person you're rooting for in the end is honoring herself. I love that idea of being true to, though this is a story of fantasy and involves many fantastical elements, the emotional and psychological realism of the characters is very is very present in that real life is not always black and white or very rarely black and white. There are all sorts of specific situations uh, that need to be negotiated or to be navigated. And, well, speaking of navigation and the stars... <laughs> But that Honorine needs to sort of develop her own judgment about what she thinks 
is the correct way, not necessarily the right way, but the correct way forward for her. Where do you see Honorine after the books end? Oh, I know that. I know exactly where she ends up. <laughs> well, um, without spoiling it. More... <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would love to tell more stories about her. I see her exploring every corner of the world she can find and meeting as many people as she can possibly manage to meet and bringing the things that she finds back to the people she cares about. Um, I can see her being the, the person who goes on a vacation and wants to tell you about every single person she met and like beach she visited and mountain she climbed and in great detail and being super excited about it. I think she just at a, at a perfect point in like world history and her history, you know, she just has realized that the world is far bigger and broader than, um, than what she, again, like, like kids, you hit that age where you have your neighborhood in your home, but that's usually the age where you get to see everything expand, you know, just like the universe expanding. So I think she's going to go out and, um, do a lot of traveling for a very long time. (laughs) (laughs) And for a very long time, indeed. Well, Lindsay, thank you so very much for being with us on this episode of the podcast. Listeners across the universe, friends through the digital waves, the book is The Star Thief, soon to arrive on shelves in libraries and bookstores everywhere. Thank you, Lindsay, for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk to you again soon, listeners. Bye-bye. <laughs>